1: Hello and welcome back to Powerlines, From Ukraine to the World, a podcast from Message Heard and the Kyiv Independent. I'm Jakub Parushinsky. Each week, we're going to be analysing the undercurrents of the war in Ukraine, bringing you analysis from across the globe to explain its context and consequences as the war continues. This week, we're taking a look at one of the most fundamental things that Ukraine needs to continue its war effort, people fighting on the front lines. Because the issue of mobilization is causing debate and consternation in the Ukrainian government and in Ukrainian society. At the beginning of the full-scale invasion, the world was astonished to see these lines of Ukrainian men at the border, returning from life and work abroad, ready to serve their country. But after two years of ferocious fighting and horrendous losses on both sides, both Russia and Ukraine are suffering shortages of manpower. Russia has filled the void with immigrants, convicts, factory workers, all press ganged into serving the Russian army. They've even forcibly mobilized Ukrainians living on occupied territories. Ukraine initially relied significantly on volunteers and has gradually mobilized people throughout the period of the war. But readiness to serve is not a binary. It falls on a spectrum. And the people most inclined to fight are now becoming scarce. Actually, they need to be rotated out. People are also much more conscious of just how brutal the fighting is and are much more reticent as a result, especially of being sent to the hotspots, where shelling and living in trenches are a daily reality. The current mobilization is failing to deliver the numbers that Kiev needs as we shift towards a long war. Hence, the new drive up to half a million new recruits and new legislation to make that happen. But that raises very difficult questions, specifically, who should be called up first? At its most cynical, Ukrainian society is now asking itself, who are we ready to sacrifice for the survival of the rest? To learn more about this issue, I'll be speaking to Francis Farrell, the Kiev independence war correspondent. Before joining us, he was the managing editor at the online media project Lossy 36 and a freelance journalist and documentary photographer. Over the past two years, Francis has been traveling across the country to its front lines, meeting all kinds of people who have been mobilized. So he has a real on the ground view of how this is affecting all sorts of Ukrainians. Hi, Francis. Welcome to Powerlines.
0: Hi, Jakob. It's great to be here.
1: We are speaking on Wednesday, January 10th. And last week, on January 4th, the Ukrainian government proposed changes to the rules on mobilization that would have a dramatic impact on who is called up to the front lines. Can you give us an outline of what this new proposed law looks like and how it has been received by Ukrainians?
0: Yeah, so the first murmur that we heard that this was likely on horizon was actually during Zelensky's press conference. I think it was actually the very first question that he answered on the 19th of December when he basically made a claim that the military has requested the mobilization of about 450 to 500,000 new soldiers for the next year. And so there's that basic need. Later, Zaluzhny, uh, in his own press conference, which was a week after the initial draft law was proposed by the cabinet of ministers, said that there wasn't such a specific request, but still this draft law did get proposed and it's worth remembering that the Ukrainian military is now a majority mobilized military in a similar way to Russia, although it's it's just not worth pretending that it's all... Uh, patriotic guys who went to volunteer from the start. So there are already many, many mobilized troops in the Ukrainian military. But since people don't really go to volunteer anymore, there is this huge need for for more people. So what the draft law is about, and as you mentioned, it could change a lot. Uh, We can talk about the status of it at the moment. But what the draft law is about is about widening the scope of people who can be mobilized, introducing more serious consequences for those who try and evade it. And overall, just uh, streamlining the process, basically giving the government and the military, the defense ministry, the muscle it needs to get these larger numbers of people for the military, which, which is just, again, absolutely a necessity. So, uh, if we can talk about some of the, of the details, like how they imagine actually doing this. Again, this is the draft law. So a lot of this is very controversial and still might not make it into the final agreement. But we're talking about the conscription age reduced from 27 to 25. For example, there's talk about introducing electronic conscription system through the same really innovative electronic government services program that Ukraine has. Talking about potentially putting basically those who are fined to evade service basically in a similar legal position. And they're still being debated by these committees and, and will be debated in Parliament as well. And the other thing is the idea of potentially seeing an end date, which is kind of counterintuitive to the need to just get more people into the army. But I think uh, the leadership finally understands that the social problems which will be inevitably caused by this could be alleviated to a great extent by having just the idea of an end date so that you can be discharged. Mm -hmm. People are discussing whether it should be 36 months or three years or a year and a half or something in between. So people who could be mobilized, uh, don't necessarily see it well, or that's it. I'm I'm probably not coming out of this alive. There's like a, a specific end date when I can come back home to, to my family.
1: So a lot to unpack there. I think maybe just coming back to some of the changes in terms of how rigorous the proposed mobilization law looks like right now. So you mentioned sort of this loss of Access to local services, basically, if you're on the debtor's lift, if I understand correctly, under the new law. And again, this is the proposal. It might change quite a bit. And I think we should unpack the direction that it's moving in a little bit later. I've heard that, you know, there's consideration about potentially even lo- losing access to bank accounts, no longer being able to leverage various government services. So that seems rather draconian. What has been the response?
0: So undoubtedly, this is the kind of one of the biggest issues so far in this year, of course, that that all Ukrainians uh, are talking about. And it's it's very sensitive, right? Because people are talking about, you know, this being draconian or this being potentially a violation of constitutional rights of Ukrainian citizens, but at the same time, you know you can't really come out against the idea of of the need to mobilize more people in general because because that is uh, it's just objective for ukraine's survival and so people are are discussing it in this kind of you know tense way but part of what makes this so kind of controversial for the population is and we can talk more about this later, but it's about how not only the the legal kind of framework within which mobilisation would be would be carried out, but it also the actual way it's carried out in practice by the recruiting officers, uh, who have this very already dirty reputation for a a lot of corruption and b quite rough practices, uh, heavy-handed practices of packing people away into buses from the street or or raiding gyms, uh, because that's where all the young fit uh, men are hanging out.
1: Yeah, I've heard reports that that recruitment officers are hanging out uh, near sport clubs, uh, gyms, <clears> all of that, especially across the mid-sized cities um, of Ukraine.
0: Yeah, just a kind of interesting, funny example, I was between uh, Christmas and New Year, I was in uh, drahobrat skiing for the first time in in three years it's a cheaper ski resort it's it's quite soviet and and chaotic in many ways and then the day after i left there was all this social media chatter about these recruiting officers who had showed up at the ski resort so there were pictures posted on social media of them walking around in uniform even with their, their their rifles it was just an interesting kind of uh, prism in which to look at the so- society's reaction to this in the comments of these posts on social media because you had some people, you know, very angry saying, you know, this, this is going too far. Like, this is just a place where, where young people want to rest and, and relax in the holidays after hard years we've all had and now they need to be afraid of, of recruitment officers. And then you have other people who might be saying, well, I mean, it, it's, it's what we need. I mean, no one, no one should be safe. Privileged people who, who are out there skiing shouldn't think that they won't be sent to war. And then you have some soldiers saying, yeah, that's, that's what we like to see. If they're young, if they're doing sport, then they should go to the army. And then you have other people who are saying, well, why aren't they in Bukovel? Because Bukovel is the is the much posher, fancier ski resort in Ukraine, very kind of European standards and known to be a popular hangout place for the elite of the country. And it's like, well, why aren't we seeing the the, the recruitment guys in Bukovel? Drahobrat is, is is more of a people's resort, so you can just see all of these very complicated social kind of murmurings and emotions concerning this. But it's something we'll see a lot more of in, in the next months, I'm sure.
1: So there's obviously a, a huge political dimension to this. You know, one thing, as you mentioned with the press conferences of Zelensky and Zaluzhny, you know, Zelensky came out with a specific number of 450 to 1,000 to half a million. Zaluzhny kind of... Said that he didn't want to say anything specific, but my understanding was that everyone came out with the feeling that it's probably the numbers probably around there. He just doesn't want to disclose it for sort of military confidence reasons. Given that they both came out talking about mobilization, is that a sign that there is an alignment between the two? You know, over the past weeks, especially, we've had rising reports about the tensions between Zelensky and zeluzhny Do you feel like them coming out and both talking about mobilization, a politically painful issue, is a sign that things between them are cooling off or, you know, that they've got a better working relationship?
0: It's a really tricky one at the press conference I was very happy to see the defense minister Rustem Umerov who was appointed not too long ago and you know my personal impression was that they had a very cordial relationship they were kind of smiling and joking around a bit and and that gave me hope that when it comes to this need for the military high command and the civilian government of Ukraine to to cooperate on some of the most challenging things like mobilization for example it gave me hope there with with zelensky unfortunately i think it's it's not that simple it's hard to say if this if this is a cooling off i think everyone would really hope for them to just be able to sit down and and work together in the most effective way possible but just Overall, the, the feeling from the, from Zelensky's press conference was, you know, he was kind of questioning his, his own military with the figure of 450 to 500,000. He was saying, you know, I'm not sure if that's a, a fair number, if that's a just number. I haven't been given enough real evidence that why we need that many people exactly and and then he he went on on to another thing about wanting to kind of stand up for civilians and defend civilians a bit because civilians can be a bit maligned by some people by the military for example for not doing enough and saying you need six civilians to fund one serviceman in the military and 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 saying these things so there is an argument to be made there that basically Zelensky understands that the social backlash caused by expanding this mobilization and and kind of getting more tough with it is eventually going to come back at him because, you know, everything leads to him. At the end of the day, he's the Supreme Commander-in-Chief and the President of the country. It seemed like he was trying to kind of position himself in a way that this is what the military being his perceived rival like Zaluzhny, this is what they want. They want to drag so many of you off to the war. And I'm trying my best to make sure it's as fair as possible and to kind of go easy on on the civilians a, a little bit. Because unfortunately, this all is happening in the context of an objective understanding that politics has returned uh, to the country. Thankfully, everyone's understood that elections are impossible, but political competition, jostling, kind of a perception of, of who is becoming more popular is, is definitely back. And, you know, there are polls with trust ratings coming out and people are looking at them. Unfortunately, you know, this, this is happening.
1: So, you know, this is the definition of of sort of a a political hot potato. It's obviously a difficult decision to make, but one that is necessary for the country. I think we should get into why that's necessary in a little bit. But as you mentioned, politics is coming back to Ukraine. You know, there have been rival or, you know, alternative uh, mobilization legislation submitted over the past week. There's been various opponents of the ruling uh, Sulhkan Narodu party that have voiced either various populist messages or you know have used the mobilization laws to criticize the government what's your take on what is happening on the political field and how mobilization is being used i think at the moment what we
0: can see is that yeah it's a very strange blurred lines uh, maybe a venn diagram of sorts between what is making the right decisions for the country and what is playing politics you know i think Lots of people have raised concerns with different aspects of the draft law. You had one committee saying that the whole equivalence of of draft dodgers and and debtors is just uh, not really properly uh, legal. That so we had the ombudsman talking about dangers to, to, to constitutional human rights, and then you have a lot of more kind of rational concerns about, for example, a certain uh, disability group now becoming eligible for the draft. And then there's the whole idea of people, um, of some of the, the aspects of the draft law basically allowing for corruption in, in the recruiting offices. And that kind of thing. So at this point, it, it, things are moving so fast and it's a bit hard to judge exactly where we stand. I, I do think it's pretty much a, a fair argument to make that a, a lot of the opposition people who've come out with concerns about some aspects of the law, whether it be the electronic draft notices or the disability groups or, or the thing about the end date of, of service, there's definitely some, some politics being played there. No one's going to take the mantle of being like, no, I, I want all this to stop. I'm going to be representing the the demographic that is against, you know, this kind of populist thing of, uh, no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't take our our men off to war anymore or something like that. Because in terms of the country being on a war footing and needing to mobilize, that's still a consensus uh, agreement. But it's it's in the little things where some opposition members are, are looking to perhaps pay, play some politics.
1: Yeah so let's take a step back to why we're talking about mobilization in the first place so first of all you know this number of half a million let's say what does that tell you about where ukraine is in terms of its military situation and its strategy going forward
0: so half a million over the next year the number in itself is pretty vague because because it's it's difficult to predict in any ways like what the dynamics uh, will be of the war in the future. We're talking about now. We're talking about Ukraine almost certainly being in a state of strategic defense for at least the first months of of 2024, and at least probably the first half of 2024, unless something drastic and unexpected happens. And so that differs very much from a year ago, for example, where we knew that the primary goal of the Ukrainian military was building new brigades specifically for offensive operations. Uh, now, at this point, we, we hear all the time from the military that uh, the brigades are on demand and that casualties, which Ukrainian units are, of course, suffering at different rates are not being uh, replenished. And when they are, unfortunately, because it, a lot of these brigades who have been through the thick of it are those with a lot of volunteer soldiers. Now, unfortunately, I heard from a friend in the, the 47th brigade who, who is fighting near Avdivka and you know their story is crazy because they were brought in volunteers to lead the counteroffensive and after that kind of petered out, they were sent straight to the hottest part of the Avdivka front line to defend there. And so a a brigade like the 47th is just ultimately going to take a lot of losses and that needs to be replenished, but it can't be replenished by volunteers anymore. So those are some of the basic needs. There's replenishing units that have taken casualties. We don't know about the plans, whether, whether Ukraine wants to still create more new brigades. So I think the consensus is that We don't need more of those to start from scratch, but it's about maintaining at least some base level of of fighting effectiveness for the, the brigades that are already fighting and already deployed. And then on top of that, you have question of, perhaps eventually replacing people and letting people be discharged and so that's that's another aspect where we really don't know where it could it could have a a huge effect on this this figure of how many people need to be mobilized because if you operate in one paradigm where service is still uh, indefinite until until the end of the war and the end of martial law that's one quantity of of soldiers that you'll need to mobilize but if you operate in a different paradigm where now finally the government is getting serious about offering soldiers an end point to their service, then those people need to be replaced. Yeah. And that just causes so many headaches for already for the command who is trying to maintain the, the fighting effectiveness of, of their military, but at the same time the objective need, and and I think most people would agree, the right of these people who've, who've fought for so long defending their country to eventually eventually be discharged is also totally legitimate so so we'll see with this draft law if if we reach a point where they'll agree on on some kind of end date to service and that in in turn could retroactively uh, af- affect the number of people that need to be
1: mobilized for the people who have been who are serving currently is it the most common situation that if somebody enrolled at the beginning of the full-scale invasion in February 2022 are most of those people still serving? Has there been any rotation at all for the people who signed up in in February twenty-two?
0: Unless there are some like exceptions of people, I mean, perhaps they they were taken prisoner and then released, or of course they they were wounded and at that point they were discharged. Yeah. But there's no there's no systemic system for for someone uh, who's been serving for that long just. To to say, well, now I'm finished. I can go home. Uh, unfortunately, and that's part of you know that's a big a big grievance of, of of the military so far because they've been like we've gone through so much. We yeah. went through, you know, you have people who who went through the defense of Kiev and then they were sent down in counteroffensives near Kherson and then immediately they were taken straight to Bakhmut and then and then they they took part in in the counteroffensive later and it's like how much more do you expect me to give to this country?
1: Going through incredibly intense battle to incredibly intense battle, yeah. right? I think that's the other thing, is a lot of this is not sort of passive serving sort of, you know, on the border. It's it's going yeah. from one hot zone to another. That sounds absolutely horrific. So you recently spent time with the 42nd Mechanized Brigade near Bakhmut. Can you tell us a little bit about the experiences of frontline troops and and who is it that that has been called up? How have they been serving? Can you give us a feel of what the situation is on the ground?
0: So the the 42nd was just quite an interesting brigade to work with in in the sense that they're not very well known. They definitely don't have this famous brand of of some of these veteran brigades or air assault brigades or or third assault or 47th uh, mechanized, which got the Leopards and Bradleys, which I talked about earlier. They are just one of... Uh, A couple of dozen kind of new brigades that were formed already within the full-scale war, just with this basic understanding that, okay, we need these new brigades to be formed from scratch with mobilized people, more or less, because, because the volunteers, they already went, they already spread out. And so it was an interesting experience. They got a lot of their senior commander corps from the 10th. Uh, Mountain Assault Brigade who I also worked with near Bakhmut uh, last year and a lot of these brigades they have this kind of regional identity yeah. because uh, their base is from one area and their recruitment officers in those regions are funneling them into, into this or that brigade and so the 47th it had um, almost everyone was from uh, Western Ukraine, uh, specifically in, like northwestern Ukraine, so uh, Volyn, uh, Rivne, Lviv oblasts. And I had a very positive personal experience with them because they were just all simple guys who who knew exactly why they were here. You know, they were all pretty patriotic, I guess you could say, and not overly like complaining. Uh, They'd been fighting before uh, in the Liman forest area, but that's already, that's like they'd been fighting for one year. So imagine the people who've been fighting for twice that amount of time. It's potentially a little bit of a different story. And of course, the other thing which I can't talk enough about, whenever someone asks me about the mood of the soldiers or, you know, how they're doing physically or or mentally.
1: I was about to ask, yeah.
0: Yeah, um, (laughs) yeah. Not only it's a huge difference what kind of unit it is, how long they've been fighting, where they've been fighting. So have they been deployed, for example, in a very quiet area on the state border with Russia or in, a, in an area of the front line, which which isn't moving. That's a huge contingency factor on on what the experience of this unit and the soldiers are in this unit. But I think more importantly, even more kind of consequential for a given soldier's morale, how they're feeling is is whether they're in infantry or whether they're doing something else. Because if their job is infantry, if their job is an assault soldier, for example, and their job is to sit in the zero line trench for anywhere between three to 10 days at a time, we're talking about winter, we're talking about perhaps being sent on assault or being there tasked with defending against enemy assaults, you know, these human wave assaults backed by huge amounts of artillery and now backed by FPV drones as well. The amount of stories I'm hearing from infantry on the Zero Line who who just are just constantly targeted by by enemy FPV drones, which can actually fly into trenches, which changes the whole dynamic of, of how safe you can be in that zero line. I mean, it's just, it's just impossible to compare the experience of inventory with the experience of almost anyone else. So I was working with the 42nd with a mortar unit and the mortars, you know, In a way, they're the smallest artillery kind of, they're very close to the infantry. They're up close and personal with the daily kind of ebb and flow of the front. But still, they're about, I mean, I was with a large mortar, so they were about four kilometers back from the Zero Line. And that makes a huge difference because they're not expected to assault positions. They're not expected to fight off Russian human wave assaults. And they're already out of the range of most Russian mortar fire and FPV drones. And they have these shifts, you know, five days at a time on the positions, then five days back in their houses. But I was in these positions and it was cold and, but you know, they were more or less set up. They could they could make them really nice because they weren't being blasted to bits by artillery constantly. So, you know, you could, you could stay warm, you could huddle up and, and it's more or less tolerable. And that's just not something you can compare to the job of, of the infantry. But unfortunately it's the infantry who are in many ways always the most needed. They need to be replenished the most. Yeah. And they and they take the most losses yeah. and they just have the worst time in
1: general. So let's talk a little bit about this issue of infantry and basically the question that this is one of the worst assignments that you can get, one of the most difficult, challenging, and also, you know, this is the biggest threat to your life. Ukraine clearly needs infantry. It has a deficit in terms of manpower. So does Russia, and they're both trying to fill that in in their own ways. What have been the suggestions there? Because essentially, Ukraine is facing the question of, you know who are we ready to sacrifice in order to ensure the survival of our society
0: yeah so one thing and this is something that, that there's very little hard uh, data for unfortunately but something that is noticed a lot by by people all over uh, within the military within ukraine in general and And I really hate you know making comparisons to russia, but it it's it would also be a bit of an illusion to to pretend that there's not something similar going on here, which is that there's a high proportion of people targeted for just simple mobilization, grabbing someone and sending them to the infantry, for example, in remoter villages across across Ukraine, kind of less uh, of a lower socioeconomic level. Compared to uh, metropolitan Kiev, for example, specifically Kiev. I mean, even even Lviv and Odessa um, have and Dnipro have have reputations for for recruiting officers being very active there. But Kiev, for some reason, seems to be more immune to this. And not only that, but yeah, just just going after people who are potentially uh, a little bit older. they're just more kind of blue collar workers for example or or agricultural workers and uh, and it's 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 just a strange thing to talk about because you don't want to put people into these boxes and again there's no hard uh, data from it but you know people friends of mine who who come from villages in western ukraine you know say that the the male population in these villages has been pretty much reduced by by half or by a third or by even more because most of them have just have just been mobilized and there's this issue of the the conscription age you know there's uh, arguments about because now it's 27 and now they're talking about lowering it to to 25 which is just a 2 year difference but there's also this broader philosophical question about should we be taking more of the young people um, because they're the ones who are more physically fit? Physical fitness is super important, especially for, for frontline infantry. Or should we continue taking many people who are over the age of 40 or even 50? It's tricky, but these people need to come from from somewhere.
1: So there's also been discussions and I've seen this. It it, it sounds kind of dystopian, but about essentially prioritizing conscription of people who are below a certain level of income of a certain threshold of paying taxes that obviously sounds quite yeah you know, dystopian but it also rings true with what you're saying and I guess the logic from the Ukrainian government standpoint is that we want to maintain the economic base there's been other proposals about a potential lottery. Where do you see this going?
0: yeah the lottery is interesting I guess but also very difficult to to imagine that being kind of uh, implemented fairly in Ukraine but yeah what what has come up more often is is this economic question the idea of specifically people paying uh, much higher taxes and uh, people voluntarily uh, paying certain a certain fee to to be exempt or to be even to be allowed to leave the country but then again, there's a huge backlash against that. I mean, people, people do notice how awfully dystopian that kind of sounds.
1: I mean, it already seems apparent from what you're saying about, you know, recruitment officers being in Dracobrad, yeah. the sort of the cheaper resort, but not in bukovel which is where the elites and the various celebrities and things like that go. So it seems to already be happening on the ground, but formalizing it is taking it to the next level.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's this kind of paradox, isn't it? I mean, if, if it's already happening, and it's just bad and, and, and dystopian, although there might be a rational explanation for it, but actually formalizing it and, and making this, you know, the, the open rule of the country that if you have money, you know, then you won't be sent to war, you can avoid it. And if you don't, then then you have a higher chance. I mean, that would be a a step in 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 the wrong direction i think many people agree
1: what about the issue of draft dodging to what extent is this a big problem uh, both in terms of you know the people who are trying to avoid the draft whether it's through bribes fake medical records illegal crossings is that a major phenomenon that we're seeing is it on the rise
0: it's hard to exactly get a sense of the, of the scale of it and how that could you know, affect future mobilization epi- efforts and, and affect discourse in society in general. But it's, it's been a problem since the start of the full-scale war. I remember I was in a hostel in in Moldova in in summer 2022. It was just a normal tourist hostel, but there were were some Ukrainian refugees, but there were also about five Ukrainian guys who had just made their way, ran across the border. I don't know, some paid their way. Some went through across a river or something like that and that's that's the reality it's still possible people talk about it sometimes that you know there are these telegram channels that you can you can go go to and and message and they they help organize it the price of it is consistently around Four, five, $6,000. And it's still a thing, unfortunately. you know, A lot of people, especially if we're talking about uh, kind of more uh, higher socioeconomic status, people like the people working in, young, young men working in IT, they're often the ones who make this decision. Some are more ashamed of it than others. I just have personal stories there. But again, of course, I don't, I don't have the right to, to judge um, as a foreign citizen. But yeah, it, it's happening. And then yeah, other people, they know friends who, who are just kind of hiding. They understand the, the risk of being handed... Uh, summons in person. And again, this depends a lot on on where you are in Ukraine. So in Kiev, I haven't heard as much of this worry from, from my friends, for example, who are conscription age. And sometimes you see people in in uniform walking about, but there's not that culture of fear that has been reported on in cities like Odessa or Dnipro, let alone places more more in in the countryside, especially the border regions. I think there's a Carpatia, Bukovina, Odessa region where there is potentially more of a chance of people actually trying to to get across. And then that's where efforts to catch them, not only to catch them, but to recruit people are are higher as well. Personally, I had I had one um, Instance where I was approached by recruiting officers and and, and that was obviously that didn't go anywhere because I had a foreign passport, but that was right on the border with Hungary, actually.
1: It's interesting that you mentioned Odessa as being one of the harsher places. It's, there was also that story last year where I believe one of the mobilization officers had issued a lot of essentially waivers. Uh, I think for the price that, that you mentioned, you know, four or five, $6,000 and then bought a villa in the Spanish coast using that. What are the plans to address corruption that inevitably comes with? Increased mobilization.
0: Unfortunately that there are no like clear mechanisms and also not in the draft law where it's like this is what we're gonna do to really clamp down on this. Everyone claims that they want to improve this uh, and make it better and obviously you do have state bodies whose job it is to to handle this so the sbu and the investigative committee and nabu who will inevitably if there's enough of a evidence and enough of a scandal eventually look into something and 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 conduct some raids and seize some property and 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 maybe arrest some people. But unfortunately, there's no immediate, clear pathway to to have a, a stricter approach to this. And and this issue of the recruiting officers, their corruption and their practices, this is at the center of the social kind of issues caused by mobilization, you know, on one hand, they have like one of the most unenviable jobs in the world, I would say, like filling in quotas and and forcing people to go to war. But, you know, when it comes to this dirty work, there's also a lot of dirty business behind the dirty work. And I've heard uh, a lot of public uh, soldiers and high ranking officials uh, in the military saying that a big way to improve uh, mobilization and to make it all happen without that social backlash would just be to have it with more respect, have it done, you know, le- letting people, giving them time to finish their business before they, they go to the army, to not be worried about being stuffed into a bus uh, on the street and yeah, to not have this, this reputation of, of corruption and sometimes violent abuse in these recruiting centers, but th- there's no immediate roadmap of, of how that will be improved
1: looking back at the coming weeks what do you expect to see from the legislation around the mobilization first of all is it likely that we'll have a definitive version of the law anytime soon let's say over the next month or two and do you expect that it will become harsher or or perhaps uh, soften down a little bit
0: yeah so when the draft law first came out you had uh, you know people from uh, Zelensky's party. Talking publicly uh, about how this is about finding a compromise. And so, so the big question with the draft law is like, what is the compromise between? And that goes back to this dynamic between the, the, the military leadership, the defense ministry, and Zaluzny, and and uh, the political leadership, uh, finding a compromise of where we can reach a point where, you know, this gives us enough tools to, to mobilize uh, more people at the scale we need to but it won't cause as much backlash for being just too harsh and too too heavy-handed and so that's what we can see will probably be developing in the next in the next few weeks i think i mean i think there's no other option than for the country to come to an agreement about this and and for that to start to be passed and to start being implemented we already had an announcement from this same MP Goncharenko from, from Poroshenko's party saying that it looked like the idea of being able to conscript people in this third disability group again that's the the least serious so things like diabetes for example that probably won't make it into the into the final at least the the first draft law that the actual Verkhovna Rada the the parliament will have a look at. So I think something something will make it through in the next few weeks. I don't see the benefit for anyone, whether it's the politicians, the military, the country, to, to drag this on for too long because there's already enough of a, a constant storm around this issue. And I think at the end of the day, you know, the politics is not toxic enough at this point in, in Ukraine where anyone is, is willing to really put the country's security at risk for, for politics. So, this this will continue at the moment where it's still in the stage where things are fanning out into like different versions of the draft law and different committees looking at it and all giving their own opinion so it, it's taking a little bit longer than maybe that some people expected but eventually we'll start seeing that converge on, on some kind of consensus that can be looked at in parliament and eventually passed
1: all right francis uh, thank you so much for joining us on power
0: Thanks, Jacob. It was a pleasure. Have a good one.
1: Thanks so much for listening to Powerlines, from Ukraine to the world. Don't forget to subscribe and rate Powerlines wherever you get your podcast, as it really helps others find our show. To find more podcasts like Powerlines, look up Message Heard wherever you're listening to this podcast and find us on our website, at messageherd.com or on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by looking up at messageherd. You can also follow The Cave Independent on Twitter and Facebook at Independent and Instagram at Independent underscore official to get the latest news and stay up to date with our coverage. If you're interested in more in-depth analysis of the reconstruction of Ukraine, be sure to check out insights.caveindependent.com. You can also support The Cave Independent through our website.